Folks, listen up. I've got something crucial to share with you today. In this uncertain world, you need to be prepared for anything, especially when it comes to your health. That's where the wellness company comes in, offering you peace of mind in a box with their medical emergency kit. Picture this. You're faced with a medical emergency and you need quick, effective treatment. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit is like having a strategic arsenal of life-saving medications right at your fingertips. From proven treatments like ivermectin to generic Z-Packs and amoxicillin, this kit has got you covered. But that's not all. Every kit comes with a medical emergency guidebook, ensuring you have the knowledge to use these medications safely and effectively. It's like having a medical professional right there with you when you need it most. And here's the kicker. Use code FFN to get 10% off your medical emergency kit at twc.health FFN. That's right, folks. 10% off, peace of mind in a box. Don't wait until it's too late. Get your medical emergency kit today and be ready for whatever comes your way. Stay safe, stay prepared with a wellness company. Again, use code FFN to get 10% off your medical emergency kit at twc.health FFN. never promised that it was I just I just want you to be the best you can be love you I hope you find this letter Why I pour out? Because the Lord tore my heart out. Let me cover you, bruh, it's cold out. We're soldiers, but the older we get, the easier our shoulders give out. Headstrong and living dead wrong. Running through avenues you don't belong to. I gotta mention it's heart wrenching. It hurts to see you losing your grip. Starting to slip, getting fast money, living too rich. Addicted to that quick fix. Check your heart like a Fitbit. Can you blame me? It's okay to hate me. You're outside the framing like a child's painting. Throw them sticks and stones. Yeah, you got a sick flow Poison like skull and bones I want you better so I stand opposed I don't give a damn about a gym bones I'm writing this letter to set the tone The pain's embedded but ain't set in stone Your stomach's sick cause you're missing home It was written we don't walk alone Oh God, I hope you pick up your phone today i found myself with my hands in my face i forgot i was running from this pain we're from poland so i guess i got used to the rain you said north dakota and i saw you packing your things i'm proud of you because you needed that change but i'm still stuck in my waist stuck in a maze digging my grave hurting my brain stuffing my nose with cocaine losing my hair like rogaine it's a lie when i say i'm okay i'm going insane i don't want to die with no name another hang around like a gold chain i don't want to play around no games go against the grain crashing waves i feel like superman when he lost lois lane now i'm super mad trying to find a better way but I'm super glad God gave me a brother like you, man. Hope that you know that you know father loves you. Your scars are deep. Your scars are shining. Set your pride down and open your eyes now. Jesus and me by your side now. We heard you cry out. Give me your cross before you die out. It's too heavy to bear it. Like Simon, I'll help you carry it. He'll take your sin, bludgeon, and bury it. We're not dungeon dwellers, more like caterpillars. Storms rage, so we seek shelters. But realize the sun's rays don't reach storm cellars. We survive to be more than just storytellers. This earth's a thorn in our side as it turns like propellers. One thing's for sure, this world's crazy and I ain't afraid to tell her. 
I love you, brother. I'm glad you read the letter. I hope our paths cross back together. We're two birds of a feather, like tight laces crisscrossed through leather. Two souls to walk bold, no matter the weather. Remember and know we gotta surrender to grow. Our image was rendered to glow. Knowledge is power, but wisdom makes it flow. Wisdom makes it flow. Sulfur filled his lungs as the fires of the battlefield rose around him. Bodies lay upon the ground at his very feet as he walked this recent graveyard. His red cape pronounced itself as it followed its master through the mixture of blood and mud. Through the slots of his helmet, he peered out to his men and thrust his bloodied sword into the bosom of the sky and let out a cry of victory. Then, followed with a shout that shook the very earth, a shout that came from the throats of all his valiant men, save for one. One man draped in a burlap robe hung his head down low so that no man may see his face and whispered into this general's ear, Memento Mori. Back home, the walls of Rome stood tall to embrace the man who led her to victory. Inside her walls, the general was greeted with the drums of the gods and the people how they praised him. Women adorned his neck with flowers and the people danced in the streets. Caesar filled his ears with honey that his hubris hungered for. And yet... That frail man with the robe followed not more than one step behind and whispered into his ear, Memento More. The esteemed general returned home, his hands gliding through the grains of his fields, his son wrapping his arms around his father's leg to be hoisted with each step the warrior took. His wife's brown hair kissed the winds gently as he approached and wrapped her in his arms. No person under his watch would go hungry that night. Sleep would find his bed and he would drift into dreams of paradise with his family. Even so, as the general slept, that same hooded man knelt beside him, his hand on the general's heart, repeating under his breath, Memento Mori. The calling of Rome heeded our hero, and again he cinched his boots and fastened his breastplate, his sword sharp enough to cut any man down, his heart fierce in strength, seemingly invincible. He stationed his phalanx upon the battlefield and walked betwixt the rows of men, feeling the bloodlust of battle emanate from their very souls. These were his men under his charge, and wherever he would go, they would follow. The Saxons rose from the trees of Germania, and this leader of men rose the sword that commanded the wrath of Rome in the direction of these devils. But life is not always as intended, and death never expected. With a dull thud, an arrow pierced our che hero's chest, bringing him to his knees. As blood poured from his mouth, as he gasped for each breath, the cold embrace of death surrounded the man, his family, his home. Every deed he had done be flashed before his very eyes. No dreams of power, no wealth of nations, nothing but who he was and the legacy he left behind. In his final moments, the hooded man smelling death on his general, knelt down beside him one last time and said aloud so that all could hear, Momento Moe, remember that you must die. Welcome to the Federalist Faction. Last week I filled in for Chad Caton and this is going to be kind of a more in-depth, a little bit more of a dive into the life of Alexander the Great. If you listen to that one, some of this will definitely be some repeat. With that being said, we're kind of going along the themes of this phrase called memento mori. If you know a little bit about what it means, um, some say that its originations began back in Rome, that a Roman general or someone of power would have hire a slave to follow behind him and whisper these words into his ear to constantly remind him that death could be around every corner, to make sure that he did not become so involved in himself so full of himself that he thought himself as invincible and unable for death to grasp him. So this slave followed him, humbled him, said it over and over and over again. Remember, you must die. Other people claim that this saying grew throughout the Christian church. You see a lot of the uh, paintings around the Middle East, a lot of these paintings end up having a, uh, Colorful, vibrant pictures of people celebrating and dancing and um, all jacked that life itself is going on the way that it's intended to be. But somewhere in the painting, there are skulls um, or images of death 
that are hidden in the corners of the paintings. Or sometimes these, the faces of the people that are dancing are dead. Also, what does this mean? Well, even in times of celebration, it's good to be reminded that one day you're going to die. So how should you live your life? And why is this, this thing that we should remember, why is it so important that it was ingrained within the Christian church for years and years and years? Through many of the Middle Ages painted into these paintings, it's even put into some of the cathedrals of Rome, this imagery of death. A lot of people think that uh, death can be more of a morbid topic, something that not very many people want to think about, of course, because it's, um, it's unexpected. You don't really know what's going to go on after you. And if you got family, you got kids, you worry about that. How are people going to live a life without you? Will you be remembered? Have you lived a decent life? Where will you go? All these things are questions that surround our minds in those final moments. So nobody really likes to really think about it. You know, um, when people are filling out their wills, it's normally done when people are really, really old and they have nothing left to do but face down death. When in all reality, death is all around us and it could happen to any of us at any moments. I'm constantly reminded of it every time I get on my motorcycle and somebody who probably doesn't ride says to me, oh, you better be careful on the thing. Oh, how could you be riding that death trap? Well, I'm going to die someday anyway. So, I mean, when it comes, it comes. There's no point in worrying about it. So how do you live a life where you're okay with that? And what does it mean to live a life like that? And how does that, how does that affect our culture today to not be afraid of death? You know, um, or maybe to be afraid of death, I guess, would be another way to think about it. There's a scene in a, a series, TV series that I really, really enjoyed um, called Peaky Blinders. And I believe it's Thomas Shelby. He's standing before um, the noose. He's ready to be hung for all of his crimes. And he goes into this spiel about when he's looking through a hangman's noose, when he's peers through that hole, that he sees his entire life in front of it, that the noose humbles him, that it makes him realize that he is nothing more than a man. Even through all the wealth that he has accumulated, the power that he has over um, his city and his state, that it could all end at this one simple moment, a couple strands put together and hung from... Um, a wooden banister. It's, it's something that I think needs to be brought to terms and something that I think we should be reminded of more often. In fact, it makes me think that is one of the main reasons why the people who came before us lived such more moral lives than what we see today is because they were unsure or maybe they were sure about who their creator was and that they would be held accountable to him someday. So therefore, you better live your life right because you don't have much of it and it could be gone in a flash. That and disease ran rampant throughout all the lands. I mean, people were only living until their 30s and 40s. Uh, a lot of these people that were serving in the military were 16 years old. Death was in front of them. It was part of everyday life. They didn't have the medicines that we had today. So did that make a lot of these people live better lives? I'm not sure, but I think... Personally, I think it has something to do with it. Um, as we go through some of these solo, I guess, talks with you guys, it's kind of me just racking through my mind. I'm not claiming to be right or wrong on any of these issues. They're simply just kind of my thoughts on what it is that's at hand. And I would definitely love to hear from any of you what your thoughts are on it. And we'll just keep this conversation going. So... With that, how is it that we are supposed to live? You know, in Genesis... God says that he created man in his image. And I was like, what in the world does that mean? Like, does that legit mean this physical body, the arms, the legs, the head, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we walk, our physical movements? Is that meaning the image of God in like that literal of a sense? Or is it more so in the sense of how it is that we are supposed to live out our lives as moral creatures? to um, love the helpless, be there for those that need it most, um, to live out sinful earth, so whoa, sinless lives here on this earth. So then, okay, well then what is sin? Well, sin derives from the Greek word, I believe, um, called harmatia, or harmatia. And this is an archery term that means to miss the mark. 
So a sin would be, uh, I guess, missing that mark on what it is that we are to live a moral life. So if you have all this pegged out in front of you as to how it is you're supposed to go throughout your life, whenever you, I guess, void that moral code or come against it, that would be a sin. And scripture ends up laying that out. So to be made in God's image is to be made perfect and holy. But when we sin, we negate that and we we come against that vision for us, that creation, that that image of God, we sin against that. We miss that mark onto what it is that we could be. And, okay, so how, how do we become more like God? Well, that's all laid out in Scripture, and we don't have enough time to go through all of Scripture. But you see that some of the things that were given to the Israelites were not like the, with the clean and unclean animals, the bathing procedures that they had to go through. Um, some of the other laws that were given to them were not only given for the glory of God, though they were that, they were also presented as a way to live your life throughout that period of time or this period of time in such a moral way that you can get through life in such a way that that would be presentable to others and to God. So, all right, well, cool. So what is that at its core? Well, so not only does that keep you clean, it keeps you um, upright and able to be able to be a moral standard that other people can look up to as to what they are to be like. The more like pastors, I guess, would be kind of a good example, although not in all churches, that is for sure. But pastors at a pedestal are held to a much higher standard than the regular people here on earth, right? You see them up at the pulpit and you're like, okay, great. They give their message and that's fantastic. And then as soon as um, they hit the real world and you go out and you see them within this rural, real world, if you see them cursing or drinking excessively or any of these things, you're like, holy crap, this is a guy that I looked up to. And you immediately castigate them as, oh man, they should definitely not be doing this. Even though we as, I guess, normal folk may participate in those very same acts. Well, why is it that we act that way? We act that way because we held those people to such a standard that was higher than ourselves, something to look up to, which whether that's right or wrong, it's, it betrays that moral standard. It betrays what you thought of that person, how you held them in that regard. And when that betrays it, it betrays how you thought you should live your life because everybody wants to appear to be that altar boy or to be that good person, especially within the Christian faith, right? Well, so... Once the you see the past betray that trust, now you're like, well, I'm not going to obey that at all either. Now let's bring this back into the terms more so within this country itself in regards to our founding fathers. John Adams um, stated that our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So these laws that were placed for us to abide by are were very, very few, especially at the founding of our nation. They were just basic guidelines to keep pe people out of other people's business, to ma make sure that the, I guess, nation or the states were well-maintained. But most of all, people were responsible for themselves, for their own individualism. Okay, so that's fantastic and all, but how in the world is that going to work? You know, there's, um, I wonder if I have it here. There's Frederick Bastiat said, um, the socialists say, since the law organizes justice, why should it not organize labor, instruction, and religion? Now, I'm going to pause right there. The socialists say, since law organizes justice, why should not organize labor, instruction, and religion? Okay. This is why we were given such individual freedom is because we gained our religion and instruction and the way that we were supposed to work all from scripture. It was part of that moral code, moral and religious code that John Adams is speaking about when he's talking about the way that the government was implemented upon the United States of America. So we had something to, that was meant to rule us. And the churches were the cornerstones of the buildings, or, or the cornerstones of the buildings, the cornerstones of the towns during this time. So if somebody had a moral dilemma, they went to the church. Very, very far in is when, you know, and the people rallied around that. The people, if somebody stole from their neighbor, they were punished by their neighborhoods. 
And it was brought to the church and a lot of these little small villages or colonies before sheriffs and deputies were really implemented out in the, um, the rest of the nation. The church was that cornerstone. And a lot of the, I guess, laws or rights and wrongs derived themselves from scripture itself. So why can't law itself organize labor, instruction, and religion? Because the law, if the law forces you to believe one thing and really forces you, people tend to have this attitude that if they're told to do something, just out of spite, they won't do it. Simply because they're being told to. Well, if you want me to do this, screw you. I'm not going to do that. And honestly, um, I'm really bad for that. If I'm being completely honest, if somebody tells me I can't do something or that I can do something or anything like that, I tend to lean toward the opposite. And it's not always a healthy habit, that is for sure. But I totally get where this is coming from and should not organize labor. Well, if the, the law forces you to work, then you become slaves to the state. Then you're forced to work for somebody other than yourself. So you're forced to put in the labor, put in the work for that of a nation state. There is no pride. I know um, Martyr May, Daryl Cooper, he's doing an episode right now um, that's absolutely phenomenal about the coal miners up in Virginia and how a lot of their villages were owned by the these coal companies. Well, so the people, the coal workers, when they came and they worked, they stayed in these individual villages for these coal companies. And they were owned, you know, like I said, by the coal company. So when they'd work, they'd come back and they treat these places kind of like crap. Well, mainly because the coal company owned them and they weren't there. So they had no respect for them. So why should they treat them well? And on top of that, these um, coal companies were extremely ridiculous toward their people. They were making them work insanely long hours underneath extremely unsafe um circumstances not only that but if somebody spoke out wanting to get higher wages or anything like that they would literally in some cases be beaten to death if there was any talk of um unions you'd be shot or your family would be run out your name would be cascaded and you wouldn't be able to get a job for hundreds of thousands of miles so it really ruined their lives well imagine that in a nation state sort of way if the nation were to bear down and tell people when it is that they had to work when they had to show up, not show up, how much of their money went to it. And then the very living that you lived in was owned by the government, but you also had to pay for that living on top of it. I don't think we would end up treating that very well at all. We would take it for granted. And another uh, thing I can see it in today is definitely with the health care system that is starting to be implemented within the United States at the beginning of Obamacare. Once this really started coming in, people, and I mean, it was definitely happening before, but obesity is extremely on the rise because people are less and less inclined to take care of themselves if they have somebody else footing that bill. Same thing goes with the student loan forgiveness program that is going on. Well, now I don't have to really be you know, smart about my choices that I go into college because if somebody else is going to foot the bill, why wouldn't I take a class in lesbian dance theory or basket weaving or anything like this. If somebody else is going to foot the bill, then I'm going to disrespect that privilege that was given to me. Whereas effect, if I were to have to work for my college degree, put in the time to make the money and be able to spend that money then for a further education to better my career, then maybe I would think a bit better into going into mathematics, going into the sciences or into law, whatever it is that I want to, or that I need to do to make a living because it's an investment in your future. And if you yourself are not making that investment into your future, why would you care where other people's money is going? And that's the very dangerous thing I find with this whole trying to organize law into um, labor. Now, instruction, that kind of goes into the same thing. We saw this extremely ramp up during COVID. People telling, or the government telling people that they had to stay home during certain times, that they weren't allowed to go see families in hospitals, that they weren't allowed to travel outside of states, have family gatherings, parties, anything like this. And the funny thing is, is like, especially in these places in LA or places that really crack down, that's where we saw some of the most hostility towards the government. We saw big uh, Trump rallies right in the middle of the streets. We saw people going to work, opening their businesses, and then having to be shut down by the police in not so peaceful of circumstances, simply because the government told them that they could not do a thing. This was the law imposed as instruction. 
And it is also an extremely volatile source when you start telling people what they can and cannot do and start taking away people's freedom to choose how to live their individual lives. Okay. And again, we talked about the religion. So let me go on with his quote. I'll start from the beginning again, just because I went to public school and I can't read very good. The socialists say, since the law organizes justice, why should it not organize labor, instruction, and religion? Why? Because it could not organize labor, instruction, and religion without disorganizing justice. For remember, the law is force, and that consequently the domain of law cannot properly extend beyond the domain of force. Notice the difference here that he makes between that of justice and that of force. Law is the heavy hand which may implement justice, but the law is not justice. Justice is brought upon those who violate the moral code upon which it is that we live by. The, now, let, let's get into that a little bit. Okay, So justice would be if somebody violates the law of una being unable to steal, violating somebody else's personal property or anything like that, then justice would be served to the person who did the violating against another individual. Now, Frederick Bastiat, he talks about that the law should only be implemented in three areas, that of mind, that of property, and that of freedom. If you violate any, anything else, anything other than those three things, the law should not exist because it is such a powerful force, right? Anything that is put into law has the ability to end in death. If somebody violates that law, even if it's so much as speeding, and you speed over and over and over and over and over again, and you start acting, I guess, childish toward the cop and it escalates, you could potentially die. I mean, we see it on the news sometimes because people are idiots and they don't know how to respect cops. And stuff like that. Any law that is put on the books has the potential to get somebody killed. So we need to be careful about what laws are implemented. So Frederick Bastiat boil it down to these three basic things. That is the physical individual. And I, I'll probably get these a little messed up as I'm going, because it's been a while. The physical individual, the mind of a person, the freedom, the property. Okay. So um, I guess individual is mixed in there with property, okay? Because that is oneself. So everything else, how a person lives, needs to be boiled down to that of taking care of their individual if only these three things are to have laws abiding by them. Okay, so what I mean by that is that if there's going to be these laws that are only protecting you from another individual's freedom, you don't have the right to go over there and take from that person. <laughs> Student loan forgiveness taking from somebody else's pockets to benefit another being. It is to lower the status of that of blue collar workers or people who did not go to college to elevate those that did go to college. So you're taking one class of people and you're putting them above another. Therefore, Basia would rule that as an unjust law and something that cannot be put into place. The same thing would go with um, Obamacare, people who do not take the time to invest themselves with life insurance or who did not take care of themselves um, properly throughout their lives and now have to suffer for it to those who remained healthy, who worked out, who put in the time to remain healthy, who did the right things, made the right choices. Those people are being forced to pay for those who got to live extravagant lifestyles in the food world. Okay. That is something that Alex, that boss would be against. Now, um, you know, same thing goes among property and individualism. If you have ideological ideals that push against another one. And this is where Bastia and I kind of come to terms a little bit is with this uh, ideology. I am not um, fond of the LGBTQ movement. And remember back in the 90s, I mean, I was still in high school when this was going on, but they were being pushed that whatever happens in the bedroom stays in the bedroom. And everybody was like, yes, that's fine. Well, for the most part, I mean, some people weren't. Well, that has steamrolled to now. If you say anything against the way that I live, now I will bring you to terms. I will ruin your job. I will take you from the way that you live, and I will throw you out into the world and castigate you. So 
we saw that that was a slippery slope that was happening because that was an immoral move upon the code that we lived and we were founded as a nation. Remember, John Adams, our constitution was made for only a moral and religious people. So once you start stepping outside of those bounds, you start dragging the rest of the populace with you. I used to be, I used to switch actually from conservative to libertarian. Now I'm pretty staunch conservative. And this is simply the case is because those bad moral injustices, those ways that those people fall out of the moral code, they have ramifications upon the society in which they are indwelt upon. This homosexual behavior has led to transgenderism, which has led to our kids being mutilated at the ages of 12 to 16 up to adulthood, right? That is not something we can abide by. On top of that, um, another argument that I like that I see to use is that of um, weed and that being legalized. I'm fine if you smoke it inside your house, do whatever you want. But as soon as that has social ramifications upon the people, if you stop showing up to work, if you stop um, becoming a productive person's in regards to society, I should not have to pay into the social welfare state to pick up your losses. Again, I guess maybe Basiat and I would agree on that. Because again, that is elevating me, who does not nefarious with my drugs, to somebody who can't control themselves and throws themselves out of being um, socially productive. Therefore, you're elevating one person's above another. Thus, should um, that is a violation of individualism and individualism and uh, also my property or my wealth that I make. Therefore, there should there is. Um, Hey there, freedom-loving carnivores. It's Jeff Dornick from Freedom First Network, and I've got a message for you. Are you tired of feeling like your beef choices are under siege? Well, fellow patriots, it's time to fight back with Prepper All Naturals. That's right, folks. In a world where the beef industry is under constant attack, Prepper All Naturals is here to stand tall and proud as a veteran-owned beacon of quality, taste, and freedom. When the guys at Prepper All Naturals set out to provide you with the finest beef products, they knew they had a duty to defend America's beef legacy, and that's why we're proud to partner with them, bringing you the best of what this great land has to offer. Whether it's their succulent freeze-dried beef cubes or their premium freezer boxes packed with steaks and roasts, we're redefining what it means to enjoy beef today and tomorrow. And let me tell you folks, their freeze-dried beef isn't just delicious, it's built to last. With proper stores, their beef cubes can maintain their quality and freshness for up to a decade, ensuring you'll never have to compromise on taste or nutrition. But wait, there's more. They're not just in the business of selling beef. They're in the business of defending freedom. That's why they promise to never sell you anything less than 100% all-American natural beef. No lab-grown imposters, no experimental jabs, and certainly no compromises with the woke agenda. So, fellow beef enthusiasts, join us in our mission to protect America's beef legacy. Visit freedomfirstbeef.com and use code FFM for 15% off your order. Because when you choose Prepper All Naturals, you're not just eating well today, you're eating well tomorrow. And together... We'll ensure that beef remains a symbol of freedom for generations to come. Prep for all naturals, where beef meets freedom. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is deemable for a law to be there because we must level the playing field. We both must contribute to society. Okay. I hope I'm making sense on this. Now, so... That is why it is so important to have a moral code, something that we must abide by and live by. I got into it a little bit on Chad's show, and I kind of really want to get into it um, today, just simply because um, Alexander the Great was just such a such an amazing dude, and I think there's so much to learn by him. So Alexander the Great, when he was young, he was taught by Aristotle. Um, talk about having a sweet substitute, or I guess sweet teacher. You couldn't ask for a better guy to be there for you in the areas of philosophy, medicine, and scientific investigation. So from a young age, Alexander the Great was, I'm sure, told to question absolutely everything. Um, anything that you learn needs to be backed up with concrete proof about what it is. And to, not only that, but I think that these facts or these things that we look at, I think Alexander had the ability to step inside the shoes of his enemies and be able to look around them and 
get a feel of the battlefield from their point of view. He was a he was a military strategist that is just incomparable through history. I mean, the dude was just an animal as, I mean, he's the great, right? Come on, get it together. So when he was really young, um, he actually went through, um, his parents went through a divorce. It was kind of really nasty business. So his father was actually Philip II. He was quite the dude himself. He conquered practically all of Greece and he was actually the master of Greece um, during Alexander's um, childhood. And throughout this time, Philip II, of course, being a guy and going around to all these countries, he had a bunch of bastard children that were all over that laid claims that uh, Philip II was their father. Needless to say, when this came around to his mother, I believe her name was Olympias, um, she was not too fond of the way that Philip was uh, traipsing around and sleeping with all these women. So it is said that she herself became a bit of a whore and slept around with some people as well. Well, then this shame ended up shaming Philip II, and Philip became enraged and kind of really pissed off. They got into a huge fight, and they were like, you know what? Forget you. So Olympias and Alexander were getting ready to leave, but get this. I believe her, and I might have these names wrong, but then Alexander, his, his father, Philip II, ended up marrying this gal, and I believe her name was Cleopatra. And at their wedding, this is how awkward this is and just how weird it is. At their wedding, his ex-wife is there with Alexander. So imagine how that would be going. So, and it was during this time that he brought up those accusations that she was sleeping around. I want to read this for you guys, just so you can kind of get a feeling of how just ridiculously crazy it was. So... And bear with me. So the, uh, let's see here. So two years, let's see, as a ruler, Philip of Macedon was greatly prized. As a husband, he was less than seller. Philip was frequently far from home and far from his queen, Olympias. He was known for forming illicit liaisons wherever he traveled. Several illegitimate children were openly recognized by him and by his courtiers throughout many lands. His home life and domestic affairs were never in very good order. His domestic affairs began to rise to the point of crisis just as Philip was planning his attack on Persia. Keep that in mind, too. This attack on Persia that's, um, I guess, kind of happening uh, that Philip wanted to go through but was kind of put at a standstill, and we'll find out why. Um, Philip's domestic affairs in Macedon had never been really that great. Olympias, the royal spouse, may have finally had enough of this turmoil. Um, beings that she was in 338 BC held in suspicion of adultery, a great sin for a queen, and tantamount to that of treason. Philip returned to Macedon and publicly humiliated Olympias with accusations and threats. Philip even went so far as to question whether or not Alexander the Great was really his legitimate son or not. After this debacle, Olympias retreated with Alexander, preparing to return home to her native state of Epirus. Alexander, a fairly young man, was livid with hatred for Philip at the treatment of his beloved mother. Undeterred, Philip of Macedon contracted himself into a second marriage. He chose a woman named Cleopatra, the niece of General Attalus. General Attalus had served loyally in Philip's army, and this was a good political match, so the wedding feast was held. At the feast, General Attalus became intoxicated and made remarks that inflamed the conflict. Under the influence of too much wine, and probably just being a jerk, Philip expressed the wish that his new wife should soon bear the child and provide the Macedonians with the rightful heir to the kingdom. So this would, in sense, kick Alexander the Great out of the line of secession to become king during that time. Alexander, Philip's son by his first wife, Olympia, overheard these unwelcome comments. Upon hearing what Attalus said, Alexander became enraged. Duh. Like, duh. Alexander threw a full cup at Attalus's head and shouted at him. Keep in mind, this is happening at his second wedding. You thought you've been to some crazy weddings? This had had to have been like a whole nother level, guys. Like, I couldn't imagine. Alexander is reported to have exclaimed to Attalus, what, you scoundrel? Am I then a bastard? 
King Philip took up the defense of Attalus and rose from his seat, donning his sword. Philip attempted to rush at Alexander. Philip was exceedingly drunk, which is probably why the hand-eye coordination wasn't there, and he fell down on the floor before he could do any real damage. This was an extremely embarrassing moment for the new bridegroom-king as the onlookers most likely tried to stifle their laughter. Alexander responded with scorn with the scorn the act deserved. According to historical reports, Alexander looked down at his father and said, See, there the man who was making great preparations to invade Asia at the head of a powerful army and falls to the ground like a helpless child in going from one seat to another. So, uh, look like Alexander has a little bit of sarcasm. So, after this terrible public scene, Alexander and Olympias then left the capital city. Alexander went to Epicurus, and Olympias returned to Illyria, which is kind of where she's from. That's where um, Philip found her and married her. At this point, some of the courtiers got involved. A, a Corinthian noble named Demetrius was an old friend of the family. I slaughtered his name. It's Demeritus. Took up the cause and finally convinced Philip to call Alexander back to court. Alexander did return to court just in time to be present for the birth of Philip and Cleopatra's son. Dude, like, the timing in this, after the whole fiasco at the wedding, and him being like, oh, this, this gal Cleopatra has the rightful heir to my throne, and kind of screw you, Alexander the Great. So uh, then they departed from a time, and then he, Philip calls, him, calls Alexander back to see him at the time that the person who is taking his throne is about to be born. Like, rub it in. Just rub it in. Like, ah. Uh, I, I just don't, the scorn is just ridiculous. Thus, the remarks made by Attalus at the wedding came true, and Alexander's fears for his future were increased. Alexander remained in communication with his mother, Olympias, who began to fan the flames of Alexander's fear and jealousy. It has been speculated that Olympias herself planned the assassination of King Philip. Although this has never been proven, it would make sense as she was also filled with desire for revenge. King Philip has not only insulted her pride as a woman, he has also appeared to usurp the rightful passage of the throne from her own oldest son. The opportunity for revenge presented itself, and Olympias may have had a hand in it. It is not clear as whether Alexander was involved or not. Now, there are two versions to the story. I'll keep going with this one, but this is kind of like the branch where it kind of goes off in two different spots from historians. So we'll just go with this one with uh, Alexander kind of hating his dad, and rightfully so. Like, bro, I can't imagine. So there was a young Macedonian named Pausanias, sure, who felt that he had been mortally offended by King Philip and Queen Cleopatra. Pisanius appealed for reparations, but he was denied. Historians do seem to agree that Pisanius was um, incited to violence by Olympias or her compatriots. Pisanius planned his violent revenge, but in many ways was simply a pawn in a much larger game. The assassination was planned to take place at another grand wedding. King Philip of Macedonia had arranged another good political marriage, this time for his sister. Because Philip was so proud of his arrangement, he made the event a huge celebration. There were games, presentations of gifts, and performance of a play written by a famous dramatist, Neoplotomies. It was at this play that Philip met his untimely end. Although he was accompanied by a large um, protective group, Philip insisted on entering the amphitheater ahead of the crowd. He shook off the warning. From his bodyguards, Philip stepped forward at the head of a large and impressive procession. At that very moment, Pisanius slipped in from a shadowy corridor and stabbed Philip in the side with a knife. The wound was fatal. Now, so that is one side of the story. The, and I guess from that, um, when Alexander was at the age of 16, when his father was still in power, his father had to leave on some military escapade. At the age of 16, Alexander was in charge of, um, of Macedonia. Okay, During this time, a sacred band of Thebes, which is... Um, so the Thebians were a bunch of uh, boy lovers, to be exact. They were really 
fond for the same sex, and they were also known to be undefeated throughout the entire land. So these Thebes ended up coming to attack Barcelona. It was Barcelona, not Macedonia, sorry. Came to attack Barcelona, the city that Alexander was in charge of, at the age of 16. Alexander went out with that military at the age of 16 and defeated these renowned warriors. These supposedly undefeated... You don't get that title of being undefeated lightly. Like, I just want to stress that. Like, it wasn't that this was just some guys that were looking to, like, cause a riot. Like, this was a legit undefeated band of guys that went around and terrorized other places. And Alexander, at the age of 16, was able to conquer them, to put them completely out of commission. So, talk about the ultimate homophobe. But anyhow, on when Philip died... Alexander had this standing with the military and with the great um, accomplishments that he has made. Okay. So when he died in this other, I guess, era that was part of Cleopatra, he was far too young to rule. He was nothing but a babe. So Alexander then being pressed by the military and presented by the military themselves, they all stood behind him. Who could oppose him? So Alexander took the throne. Now, there are differences saying that Alexander came in scorn for his father and that Alexander may have had a hand in the assassination of his father, Philip II. Remember when I talked about that branch? The other branch is that him and his father actually made amends. And Alexander began to idolize his father as a great conqueror and a great leader of Greece. This was completely flip side of the coin. And I kept finding stuff on both sides, so I don't honestly know which one is true or not. But this is why I think I'm leaning more toward the size side of Alexander and Philip II making amends is simply because of the fact that as soon as Alexander came into power, he ended up um, he ended up finding Persephone. He's the person who assassinated his father, and he executed him. He also executed anybody who was um, on the political. I guess, the opposite political side of that of his father and that of himself. And Alexander was able to do this because, again, he had the power of the military behind him through his previous conquests as such a young child. Now, we won't get into it today because I only got 15 minutes left and I don't want to bore you guys to death. So we're going to skip over all of his escapades over in Persia. And I would definitely love to hit them at a later time, but I got to do a lot more research. I mean, I just hit from the age that he was from, like, born till... 16, 17 years old. Now, um, the one thing that I do want to state is that when he advanced, just a quick overview, he advanced into Thrace, he crushed Tripoli, he dispersed the Gaetia, he then turned west and shattered a coalition of Illyrians. He defended his own country from that of Asia. All while this, while running on the rumor the, of his own death that started a Thabian democracy in his own country. So he had, not only was he conquering all these people, he was also having to defend Greece from being attacked from that outer Asia. And this was just after coming to power. In fact, this Thabian revolt that ended up happening during Alexander's rule because they thought he was dead, so these guys thought that they would uh, revolt. Um, Alexander actually marched 240 miles in 14 days from Pelion to Thebes to squash this rebellion. Dude, Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I am not walking that many miles, man. Like, I am 
I'm such a pansy. Like compared to these, these guys were just animals to get. And not only that, but think about the willpower. Think of like being so ensconced with the person that is ruling you that you're willing to follow him out 200 some miles, thousands of miles to go conquer other nations. And then at the turn of a dime, now you're going to follow this guy back home to go quash a rebellion after you're already battle tired. I mean, that's just, that is, that is heart. That is soul. This was a guy that was not only a conqueror, but he was obviously somebody worth following. You read over certain accounts, like especially that of Greece, and his father was like this in certain ways, especially in his military career, that the places that they ended up conquering sometimes didn't end up putting that much of a fight because everybody wants to be on the winning side, right? And when you see this grand leader, somebody who's literally taking over the world, people want to a part of that. They want to feel that glory. They want... They want some of that purpose within their own lives. So they give up whatever it is that they're doing. They drop their swords and they follow them. I mean, when Alexander came into Egypt, he ended up uh, freeing Egypt, the Egyptians from the Persian rule. And the Persian rule was not that great at all. They were pretty suppressive of their um, ideologies and their religious beliefs. So when they were liberated by Alexander, I should back up and give a little bit of backstory before I get into this. Any, any country that Alexander ended up ruling or destroying or, you know, raising to the ground or conquering, he let the people live the way that they lived before, staying accustomed to their religious beliefs, staying accustomed to their cultures. He did not make them assimilate to how it is that he wished them to live. And I think that there's a lot of lessons that can be learned in that as well. As we go throughout life, um, we come across people that are below us, people that look up to us, people that act differently than we do. And as long as it doesn't affect us directly or even indirectly, remember, I talked about social, uh, the social services and the social programs that are put into that is affecting you. So we do need to be on watch for that. But to kind of let people live the way that they think, as long as there is somewhat of a common goal. And that's what Alexander was. He wanted to make this great nation of multicultural sorts of people. So, and that, and in this, this fight against Persia was so, it interests me so much because he picked up directly from where his father left off. So was that in spite to do what his father could not? Or did he look up to his father to the point where he felt like he was having to carry on his father's legacy in conquering Persia? It's something interesting to think about going back to the, whether Alexander had a part of his assassination or they made amends and Alexander went after his assassinator. So anyhow, going back to Egypt, when they came to Egypt, the Egyptians were so jacked that they, in fact, they gave um, Alexander the Great the double crown, which was worn by pharaohs of Egypt. Um, these are not, that's, as you start, as you studying other religions and, you know, trying to take it with a grain of salt and as I study the scripture, as I study, um, I guess, yeah, the Egyptian cultures, Babylonian cultures, these symbols and these practices that were made were not made lightly. Like people were killed. Blood was shed over a lot of these practices. So for him to be crowned a Pharaoh without being an Egyptian himself, that speaks volumes as to the kind of character and um, power that Alexander the Great legitimately had when he came into a certain area. Now, I'm going to jump all the way to Alexander's death. And we're going to leave out the middle part. Sorry, guys. If, if you guys like this and you would want to hear more on that, we can definitely do an in-depth um, study of Alexander. I think it would be fascinating. We can go into that. But um, I want to jump to his death. And I know I've talked about it before, but it, but it just hits me so hard. When Alexander returned to his country after conquering the kingdoms, gaining wealth, being the most prominent man alive during that time, he fell ill and was taken to his deathbed. He was then surrounded by his three scribes, or whatever, his monks, whatever it is that you want to call them. And he asked for three wishes. His first one was, my physicians alone must only carry my coffin. When asked why, he said, well, I want the world to know the three lessons that I have just learned. And just yesterday, 
This kind of hit me. Listen to that again. I want the world to know the three lessons that I have just learned. This was a man who was educated throughout the world. When he went and marched on cities, he marched with the generals of the, the greatest generals of the world, the greatest archers, the greatest engineers, the greatest scientists. He was taught by Aristotle himself. And yet on his deathbed, he learns, just learns these three things. I want my physicians to carry my coffin because people should realize that no doctor on this earth can really cure anyone. They are helpless in front of death. Wraps it back up to the beginning of the episode. Death is at everybody's door. Somebody as great as Alexander, who conquered a good majority of the world, who crushed the Persian armies. He was helpless in front of that of death. Something that every man faces. Something that this disgusting culture looks for a cure for. Something that they press for. They're looking for that immortality. Something to exceed our lives as much as we can. My question is why? What makes you think that you're so great that you should be able to live forever? What makes you think that this, this world is all that there is for us? Alexander saw that. So why can't we come to terms with that? Why can't we live out a life that is so well spent that when the time comes, we are all ready for it? Why are we so worried about the future when we're living right now? In every moment. <laughs> Funny story, this kind of gets me in trouble a little bit at home with the wife. But when we go someplace, she loves to take pictures and it's great. because and, and I do appreciate it because we get to look back at them. She's always getting at me, well, why don't you take pictures? You could take more pictures. It's because when I'm out in that area and I'm out in that, that moment, I don't want to think about the future. I want to think of the experience that I am having right now with the people that I care about most. I want to soak it all in so that I'm not distracted by photos, by my phone, by the future, by what's happening tomorrow. I want to live in that moment right there as it is. I don't want to take it for granted. And I think that's what Alexander the Great is seeing right here when he's talking about coming face to face with death. Point number two that he brings up. I desire that when my coffin is being carried to the grave, the path leading to the graveyard be filled with the wealth that I collected. I spent all my life earning riches, but cannot take anything with me. Let people know that wealth is nothing but dust. Who are we? that we live by this moral code? Are you living the life that somebody can look up to and want to emulate? That somebody wants to copy? That when you're faced with something, some difficult struggle, that people would look to you and be like, that's how I want to go through life. I have a really dear friend of mine. Well, and actually I sh should say, well, my mother, uh, my mother had cancer and uh, my father stood by her side all the time, kept an upbeat spirit, made sure that all us kids were informed. And he was just strong through the entire thing. He didn't complain. He didn't scream out at God, not that we saw. He prayed, he stood by her side, He got her anything that he, she needed as soon as she asked for it. And on top of that, my mother never complained. She kept a heart full of joy. The people that were around her, her nurses, the hospital um, staff, all claimed about how, how happy of a person she was throughout this trial that she was going through, this life-threatening illness. 
If only I can embrace suffering as well as my parents did. If only we could all embrace suffering as these people in our lives do. Because through that suffering, people can look to us to see a different way to life, a way to embrace this way of living, to be a testimony as to other people so that we can better their lives. It doesn't take much to look further to see somebody else far worse than you. Alexander lived for power and for riches, for territory. But nothing is now nothing more than just dust. And it was at his deathbed that he learned that. Lastly, and this one hits me the hardest. My third and last wish is that both of my hands be buried outside of my coffin. I wish people to know that I came empty-handed into this world. And I will go empty-handed as well. It's a constant reminder of who we are on this earth is, is constant with how we are living in the present. Because as Alexander was lowered into the dirt and his hands above the ground, it's for all to see. This king who ruled all these nations, this man who conquered many more. From the age of 16, taking military control of the greatest army the world has ever seen was buried with his hands outside the grave so that all could see that even he would leave this world empty-handed. We as human beings are, we emulate the people that we surround ourselves with. We pick up on things that we like from other people, the strong in our communities. We want to be strong. We want to we want to be honorable. We want to be just. But what is that? How, how do we push toward that? We remember that every day we must die. We remember that we were made in the image of God according to that of Genesis. And that to live that life is to be sinless. Which, of course, is impossible. For to be made in the likeness of God is to be without sin. But we as human beings can't help ourselves but to become, for our hubris to gain out of control and to think from time to time that we know better than God what it is that we are doing. So we create our own moral codes. We start cutting up our children. We start allowing these false teachings into our schools. We start allowing our kids to debase themselves from reality and assume whatever gender or species it is that they want to be. And it's leading them to literally their limbs being cut off, removed from their bodies, unseemly surgeries being placed upon them. As Nietzsche said, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort, comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet known has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply? to appear worthy of it? You see what happens when we become gods? We start cutting our children apart. We start murdering our infants in the womb. When we become gods, we forsake what is moral. We kill what this country was founded on. And we cast aside the meaning of life itself. So what will you do in society today? Will you sit idly by on the couch and watch as the news streams across your feed? Or will you attend these school meetings? Will you start rallies in front of your courthouse? Will you start speaking out truth even though you might lose your comfy job? Your children will pay, for the, pay the price for the decisions that you make tomorrow. And as we've discussed today, you will not live forever. In closing... 
I'm your host, The Shoe. This is the Federalist Faction. Remember, one day, you, too, will die. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.